So before even getting to the commentary this morning um, of my sermon, I want to say something about the book of Job that for me is very important. Most likely, the book of Job is the first book ever written in the Bible. If you do not know, the Bible is not chronologically in order, and in fact, the Bible is 66 different writings that comprise what we call one book, and we call it the Bible, which if you didn't know this, the word Bible literally means book. So that's what Bible means. It's the book. There is some dispute on whether or not Job was written before Genesis, but most, and myself included, believe that Job was written first. There's some compelling reasons for that. For example, Job uses a lot of words that are only found in the, uh, let me reword that. Job uses a lot of words that are not found in the Hebrew language that Moses wrote in. There are certain names for animals that's nowhere else in any more modern Hebrew writings, and so they just kind of had to come up with something. Uh, Job, in the passage that we just read, when it talked about his wealth, one of the terms that it uses for a silver, for a coin, one of the terms that it uses was a term for a coin that was used two to three hundred years before Moses was even alive and eventually quit being used. Another issue that we have with trying to say that this book was possibly written after Moses wrote the Torah is that there is no mention anywhere later on in the book when we get into the theological debate of being faithful to God, God being faithful to his people. There's no mention anywhere of the law, no mention of Moses, no mention of the God being faithful of leading his people through the wilderness when the entire book is about proving the faithfulness of God. It's very strange to think that somehow it would not be mentioned at all. And so more than likely, this book, the book of Job, it is a poetry book, which is why it is stationed here with the other poetry books of the Old Testament, but this book is most likely the first book ever written, ever inspired by God to be given to mankind to help us understand our relationship between God and to help us understand what's happening in this battle of life that we live in. Now, for me, when you understand that, that this was the first book that God gave us, indisputably, one of the first, but when you think on that, that it could be the very first book God ever gave mankind, and we look at the topic, we look at what it was about, we look at what God wanted us to know before giving us anything else, it, for me, it helps put the book of Job in proper context. So there's a lot to be learned from this book and what it teaches us about the relationship between man, God, and Satan. I would argue that how we view suffering everywhere else in the Bible and history for that matter must find its understanding in this book. For me, this book changed everything I understood about suffering. The book of Job is a lot less about Job and a lot more 
about the battle between Satan and God. It is a book about Satan and God and the divine war between the two of them. And as we see, we are part of the history. We, I I hesitate to use this term because it's a weak term, but it's how I put it in my notes. We are players on the board. We are being used. We are being watched. The real question is not, and please do not miss this. The real question is not, why do we suffer? We will answer that, but that is not the question of the book of Job. The real question is, is there ever a time God deserves to be turned on? That's the question. Is there ever a time God deserves to be abandoned? Is there ever a time God deserves to be cursed? Is there ever a time that God is not worthy of our faith, our belief, and our faithfulness to Him? That's what the book of Job is about. And as we read, ultimately that's exactly what Satan is accusing, is saying, no, God Job doesn't really worship you, man. He worships the fact that you give him everything he needs. You take it all, and what was the accusation? Job will curse you to your face. Now, that's the real question of the book of Job. Is God eternally good or not? That's what this book is about. It's not so much about Job's suffering. Interestingly enough, as we understand and set up what's going on here, this is exactly what Satan and a third of the angels did. They turned on God. They made the decision to not trust in God's goodness, to believe for some strange reason that God was not good. Satan believed that he could elevate himself above God, that he deserved the throne. God had never done them any wrong. Satan was elevated As Lucifer, the the, the chief of the angels, he was elevated to the highest position in heaven that he could have possibly been elevated to, and it still was not enough, and he still wanted more. And he turned on God. And his accusation is here, when anybody else knows you like I do, they'll turn on you too. Let's look at it together, a couple of places. I want you to see for yourself in the Word of God Uh, the truth of what I just told you. In Isaiah 14, verses 12 through 15, speaking of Satan, it says, How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of the dawn. How you are cut down. Important note here. Where is he cut down? To the ground. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. Above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. That's Old Testament. John has a revelation in Revelation chapter 12 that really is a revelation of of like the beginning. The beginning of the the fall of Satan 
all the way to there's some foretelling of his ultimate destruction. But let's look at this great sign that John saw in Revelation 12. And a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. This is a reference or a vision of uh, Jesus' mother, Mary. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven. If you've noticed in Isaiah and here in Revelation, the term stars of heaven is a symbolic word or reference to the angels. He swept down a third of the stars of heaven and look and cast them where? To the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Now, I want you to notice verse 5, it's just one quick verse. It gives us the whole life of Jesus. He was born. The enemy tried to snuff him out, but instead he was caught up to God. And so this is a very symbolic vision. There's a lot that's happening here. But what I want us to focus is on the truth that Satan was cast down to the earth. Now, verse 6, the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down. The ancient serpent, who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the world, he was thrown down to the earth. And his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power of the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before the Lord. I want to pause right there on on verse 10. It says, the accuser who accuses them. Very important thing to understand about Satan. Satan is both a name and a noun. It is a name applied to Satan because he is the noun. But the word Satan is used throughout all of the Old Testament as a noun, and anywhere else where it does not apply to Satan individually, it is translated accuser. His name means accuser. And because that's what he is, he was given the official title in biblical writings with a capital S, but Satan, it means accuser. And in the book of Job, 
when you're actually reading through it, it's just the word accuser, just the word accuser. It gets translated Satan for us because we know which accuser it's talking about. But it is just the word accuser throughout the whole book. It's not the capital S that we give it. It's just accuser. That is his title. That is who he is. That is what he does. And we see that here in Revelation chapter 12. And we see in the very first book of the Bible ever written, chapter 1, we are introduced to not necessarily Satan, capital S, but to the accuser who is going before God and accusing us, mankind, of not truly being faithful to him and of us ultimately. Really, he doesn't even accuse Job of being worthy of destruction here. It's not about Job. He's simply accusing God of not being worthy of worship. Now, let's go back to verse 11. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. So notice in verse 11, they overcome him, yet they love not their lives even unto death. So we have people who overcome this accuser and still died in the process of overcoming him. Clearly, overcoming him does not mean that we never suffer, nor that we never die as martyrs, that we never endure hardship. Verse 12, therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. So here's, you know, we could we could literally spend forever trying to go over the chronological time frame of Revelation 12 here, 1 through 13. It goes in and out of different times and seasons. Rather, it's not meant to be a chronological thing from verse 1 to verse 13, but this great big picture of helping understand the eternal conflict between God and Satan. That's what it's about. Here's what I want you to see here and in Job chapter 1. Satan is on earth. His fallen angels are on earth. And yet, here in Revelation 12 and in Job chapter 1, there is still a time that they are coming before God. And that the, the, the word in Job chapter 1, when it says that they, they, they come, the sons of God came and stood before him, it means to give an account. It's sort of like at the end of a day, if you were to have to report to your manager and explain what you did for your day. We see that even though these fallen angels rebelled against God, were cast to the earth, that there is still this time where they are under his authority and still even have to answer to him. And when he asks questions, they've got to answer back. So, all of that helps understand, starting in Job chapter 1, what's going on here. The main point is that Satan being at war with God, was banished to earth. Satan has turned on God and convinced about a third of the angels to turn with him. There is this eternal war that is waged. God banishes Satan to the earth as Satan's temporary abode. 
And then God creates man. We're part of this great big eternal plan, folks. And I promise you this, if the Holy Spirit will help you do it, and you can get out of your little tiny perspective of your life and thinking that the whole world revolves around you, when you can understand that we need to look beyond us, beyond our lives, there's something much bigger going on, something much greater. So God created man, and how did he create man? Hebrews chapter 2, verses 6 through 7. It has been testified somewhere, what is man, that you are mindful of him? The son of man, that you care for him. Look, you made him, for a little while, lower than the angels. The angels rebel, a third of them do, they are cast to earth. God creates man. And God, when he creates man, he actually creates us lower than the angels. And it is important that you understand what that means. I'm not really being funny here, but I'm just going to be frank. It means that we are dumber than they are. We are not as intelligent as they are. We are not as strong as they are. We cannot comprehend what they comprehend. We cannot do what they do. We cannot see what they see. They are created on a level that is far superior to us. God made us a little lower than them. That's what it means. And then God said, I'm going to use these lower forms of humans, lower form of creation, to demonstrate something to these fallen angels about who I really am and about whether or not I'm worthy to be worshipped and about whether I'm good and about whether I should always be, be praised. You've got to understand this great big picture of what's really going on in the eternal game here, brothers and sisters. So, Satan comes before God accusing Job. Here's what I want you to note. God brings up Job. It was God's idea. God says, have you uh, considered Job? You taking a good look at him? And Satan's accusation is, God, you're not worth worshiping. The only reason Job does it is because you bless him. And you protect him from harm. With all of that said, would you agree with me that if you were in Job's day, that it would look or appear like Job's life was just quickly and randomly destroyed? That's what it looked like. That's what it looked like to his friends, what it looked like to his neighbors, what it looked like to everybody. That it was quickly and randomly a situation where he lost everything. But this was not quick. God's the one who said, have you considered Job? God had been thinking about this day for a very long time. God had a plan to use Job to vindicate God's own righteousness and was waiting and letting Job build his faith and Growing Job to the place where God knew and had the, uh, the, the, I don't want to use the word courage, but the assurance that he could point to that servant and say, that servant will not curse me like you did, Satan. This was not just some quick thing, nor was it some random thing. It was intentional. God is bragging on Job. Let that sink in. God's bragging on him. God says, that guy right there, no matter what he goes through, he will not turn on me. 
I hope God can brag on me like that. So what was the divine purpose of Job's life? This morning, I'm going I'm to move fairly quickly. I, I intended to spend a lot of time on the intro. I want to share today three divine truths demonstrated in the suffering of Job. Three things, divine lessons that should impact the way that we understand creation. It should impact the way that we understand our life, our purpose. Number one, our earthly lives are part of something much bigger. Our earthly lives are part of something much bigger. I've clearly demonstrated there's something else going on here in Job's life. And we all know it. Now, he did not know it at the time. He didn't know. God didn't give him, it wouldn't have, even, it wouldn't, it wouldn't have worked had, had God given Job a little insight into what was going on. Because then Satan could have said, well, he only stayed faithful because you told him what was going on. And so Job did not know. But we know. We look at it and we see something else is going on here. And there is a reality that our lives are part of something bigger. There is this conversation that was going on between Satan and God. There was this continual accusation because the accuser is so, uh, I don't know the right word for it, he is so settled and determined to accuse God of not being good that there is nothing that will change his mind about it. And so it has become his very name. It's what he does. There's something bigger going on. There is a concerted effort to destroy God. We see the spiritual side of suffering, and I want you to listen carefully to what I'm about to say. The spiritual side of suffering. It all comes from Satan. All of it. All suffering comes from him. Now, let me explain. I want to make sure you understand what I'm trying to say this morning. I am not saying that every time you get sick, that God inflicted or that Satan inflicted you just like he did Job. What Satan did to Job was supernatural. We haven't even got to his affliction physically. We'll look at that next week. But what I'm, I'm not saying that because all suffering comes from Satan, that every time you get a sickness, Satan smote you with some sickness. I'm not saying that. But all disease and all death that we endure and the pain that we are in in this world is a result of Satan's demonic schemes. And so sometimes we endure pain and suffering simply because we are in a world that has been in many ways destroyed by Satan in his effort to cause suffering and harm. And so all of it, you need to understand, it comes from Satan. This is important because for me it helps provide context of the New Testament passage which teaches us we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against principalities and rulers in, in heavenly places. Like that's who we're wrestling against. Maybe you've got somebody in your life that is causing you a lot of suffering. They are mean and they are hurtful. And they do things they shouldn't do. They say things they shouldn't say. And it causes real harm to you. They will stand responsible for God for that. But understand something, the very spirit 
that has driven them to be evil ultimately will find its blame laid at the feet of Satan himself. He is the source of suffering. We don't get further than 10 verses in to the first book ever written, and we find out where suffering comes from. There is a reason that this poetic book introduces this theme to us in chapter 1. We've got to understand that. So God is not the source of our suffering. He is not the one that causes it. And interestingly enough, oh, I'm out of time for this point, but interestingly enough, the accusation isn't even necessarily that God causes it, but that it's his job to make sure that it never happens. That somehow it's his responsibility to make sure we never suffer. Even in the face of an accuser and a devil who's out to steal, kill, and destroy. So we see the spiritual side of suffering. It all comes from Satan. Even in times of discipline, some of you, my Bible scholars are like, but wait a second, it talks about God disciplining his children. It talks about God warned Israel if they didn't keep his statutes that he'd bring the plagues back on them. Yes, but what would cause that to happen? Sinning against God. (laughs) What would cause them to sin against God? Listening to the accuser of the brethren. I'm telling you, you find the root of it all. Even when punishment is just, when we take somebody that justly deserves to die and we put them to death justly for crimes that are unspeakable, even that penalty which is just, you get to the root of why it was ever needed. You get to the root of why such suffering. And the answer is Satan. He is the source of it. In our earthly lives, folks, they are part of something much bigger. Number two, the next thing that we see is that the character of God is under satanic attack. The character of God is under satanic attack. This is the accusation of Satan. Not that Job is a fraud. I mean, that's sort of the accusation, a little bit, a little side part, like Job's not really the real deal. He's only worshiping you because you give him stuff. You keep him from harm. So there's this little dig at Job. That's indisputable. But the real accusation here is that God is not worth worshiping. That nobody would really be faithful to God unless they get stuff. Unless They get some type of reward out of it that benefits them personally. And if you take those things away, God, you are not worth worshiping. The character of God is under attack. Again, first 10, 11 verses of the first book ever written for us to help us understand what's happening in this world of ours. We must worship God, not his blessings. And I would argue the only way to find out if you really worship him or not is to take all those blessings away. I'll get to that next week. 
The third thing that I want us to see this morning is that God uses faithful people to disgrace fallen angels. God uses faithful people, true worshipers, to bring disgrace upon these fallen angels. I want you to enter into the conversation with me, right? It's it's a poetic book. There's a lot that it doesn't tell. It's meant to help us understand a narrative that is true of, of, of how things work eternally. But there's, there's a lot that's not there. But what we see is that God says to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? What God is in essence saying is what do you think, Satan? This creation who is just a little bit under you. He's not as smart as you. He's not as strong as you. He hasn't seen what you've seen. He he does not know what you know. He's never stood before me face to face. None of it. Look at him. He's faithful to me. There's none like him. He's blameless and upright. Consider that, Satan. What an awesome thought that God uses us to disgrace these fallen angels. We are made a little bit lower. What a shame to Satan. And Satan says, oh, yeah, yeah, well, you you take everything away from him. You, You take it away, he'll curse you to your face. God says, yeah, we'll see about that. And we see in the end that's exactly, God knew exactly what would happen. When I think about the fact that we're, we're part of this great big eternal plan and part of our goal is to disgrace fallen angels by showing a faithfulness to a God that we can't see with our own eyes. We've never been where they've been. We've never done what they've done. And yet we demonstrate a faithfulness and a trust in Him that even they, I, honestly, right? I mean, if, if they're listening, like what were they thinking? Fools. Fools. And they look at us and they're like, what are you thinking? How can you be faithful to a God that's never revealed himself to you like we at least saw him? How can you be faithful to a God who doesn't shelter you from all pain and all sorrow and all suffering? How can you be faithful to a God you've never even seen with your own eyes? And God uses us, faithful people, to disgrace fallen angels. Radically changed the way I saw suffering. Made me think about this statement that Jesus made to Thomas. John 20 and 29, Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Man, that, that verse came to my mind. That, that had to deal with G, uh, Peter, uh, Thomas, excuse me, believing He just couldn't believe Jesus rose from the dead without seeing him face to face. And that's what Jesus is talking about there. But this verse came to my mind about how there was a certain honor, there was a certain power that comes 
from believing God by faith and knowing that he is good because he's God. That I don't need things to prove to me that God is good. That I don't need to be sheltered from suffering to prove that God is good. That he is good because he's God. That he is loving because God is love. And God intentionally for this, I I like that statement for a little bit of time. He made us lower than the angels. And don't miss it. Then he says to the fallen angels, have you seen my servants? Who are faithful. Who follow me. Satan does what he always does. He accuses us. It says, take that from that one. Take that from that one. Let that one endure harm, and they will curse you to your face. Would you for a moment with me at least consider the reality, the truth? This has been going on since day one, and it's no different in our era of time. That this is literally an argument. We see where the argument was formed. Isn't that interesting? Chapter 1, first book ever written. We see where the argument is formed that God must not be good. Unless, of course, He gives you everything you want and blesses you in all areas and never lets you suffer harm. Only in that scenario can God be good. It's a prosperity gospel in a nutshell. It's not new. It changes the way that it gets perpetuated, but it's the prosperity gospel in a nutshell. Would you agree that this is a a pretty well-founded belief system of most those in the world whose minds and hearts are darkened and alienated from the things of God? There are people who literally question the character of God because of all the harm and destruction that is done on the earth. And they, they, they question the goodness of God. They question, can God be real? They question the character of God. If there is such a thing as God, they say. Because if God is good, then it would only make sense that we always are blessed and have everything that we need and we never suffer. This is a common thing people believe to this very day. And we see who started it all, where it comes from. Can you see the importance of not letting this theology creep into the church? Can you see what happens when you do think that? How deceived you eventually become. How quick people are to turn when the only reason they actually came to God was because they expected that they were going to get everything they wanted. They expected they were never going to have to suffer again. They expected God was going to pay all their bills fix all the relationship issues, wipe away every wrong thing they've ever done and never have to suffer earthly consequences for earthly sins. And all of a sudden they find out, well, that's not true. And life is still hard a lot of times. And here in a fallen world where sin abounds and sinners live and fallen angels have been banished who are trying to destroy the character of God and the work of God in this realm that we live in, we all suffer, folks. So the goal of our enemies is to get it in our mind that if God is good, we would not suffer. I'm out of time this morning. I'm going to ask our worship team to come. Good news is I've got five weeks.
to continue to unveil and unravel this. Blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. There is a certain power that our praise has when it comes from a place of suffering. There can be no arguing of ulterior motives. Nobody can say that the only reason we're praising is because we don't know what it means to suffer. So why then, if you suffer, do you praise? Why then, if you endure hardship, are you faithful? The answer, because God is good. Because His goodness and His faithfulness and His love does not change. His character does not change, and no matter what I go through, no matter what I endure, and no matter what the enemy of my soul brings at my way, my God is always good. As Job would say, though he slay me, yet will I praise him. Naked I came from my mother's womb, naked shall I return, the Lord gave, the Lord is taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. As I've studied this book, I've been convinced that this may be one of the most important books that we need to to re-examine and truly understand in the church, worldwide, globally. We need to fundamentally change how we see suffering as it relates to the life of God's people. We need to see the platform that exists nowhere else except the platform of suffering. We need to realize that the only way that we can ever be in a position where our motives can never be questioned, where we can never be accused of only worshiping God for the benefits, there's only one place. It's when all those benefits have been stripped away. And here's the question. so hard to communicate these things, but I just pray the Holy Spirit will help me communicate it this morning. Here's the question. How bad do you want to use your life in this battle? How bad do you want to be one of the ones who bring disgrace upon this fallen army of angels that rebelled against God? How bad do you want to be one of the ones that God says, have you considered Joplin? Because the only way you can get on that platform is when all the ulterior motives are taken away. How bad do you really want that platform? It's a weird thing to say. But I want it bad. I want it so bad. And it's a terrifying thing to say because I recognize what that means. You're going to have to take away all the excuses that can be made up And it doesn't even matter if I know in my heart that's not why I worship God. So long as all those things are part of my life, the accuser can say, well, that's why he worships God. The world around me can say, well, that's why he worships God. He's blessed. He's got it all. Who wouldn't worship God? There's a part of me that says, then take it all. 
because I want to prove with my life that he is worthy of my worship and my praise and that he is good because he is God alone and there is nothing that I need to make me believe that. There is nothing that I can receive that would make me believe that more than I do. He is God and I want to worship him until my last dying breath, no matter what comes my way. There is a certain platform that only suffering gives us, folks. It's amazing how much we don't want that platform. Can you see why the devil would try to dupe us into running after prosperity? Can you see why? Can you see the actual damage? I, we get, we, oh, it's, this ain't even in my notes. I'm rambling now, and I should take the next four weeks to help provide more context. But could you see how the actual prosperity gospel itself is destructive to the church? Could you see how the world can look at the prosperous, just like Satan, who's in their chirping ear, and say, yeah, 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 those people don't really worship God. It's all about possessions and things. <laughs> 